Hello everyone, and welcome to the April 7th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm David Jimenez, a partner with Floyd, Scarin and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. A former senior official with Cal OSHA filed a whistleblower complaint claiming the Division of Industrial Relations, which oversees the agency, is misusing state and federal funds possibly illegally. Garrett Brown filed a complaint asking for a forensic audit of how the Department of Industrial Relations managed funds meant for the Workers' Protection Agency. He says he has deep concern about improper, possibly illegal, diversion by the DIR of federal and state funds from Cal OSHA to pay for other things. Brown retired in January after a 20-year career with Cal OSHA, 17 of them, as a safety engineer. Brown claimed in a 20-page report that Cal OSHA is failing to protect California's workers because of a starvation diet that is causing severe understaffing. The complaint alleges that millions of dollars in state money meant to fund Cal OSHA workers are sitting idle and not being allocated to the agency. Cal OSHA draws no funds from the state's general fund, but rather receives money from the federal OSHA and from special state funds collecting money from employers. The main state fund, the Occupational Safety and Health Fund, has registered positive balances of more than $20 million every year for the last three years. He complains that this is money that could have been used to protect California workers, but has been left idle. This fund is collected automatically every year and is designated for the sole purpose of supporting Cal OSHA and protecting workers. The OSH fund will receive an extra $8 million in the current state fiscal year. Despite this surplus, Brown complains about severe understaffing. Cal OSHA has only 170 enforcement filed inspectors for the state's 18.6 million workers. This is less than the number on board at the end of Schwarzenegger's administration in 2011, and fewer than the 253 California fish and game wardens in the field. The ratio of inspector to worker is worse in California than Fed OSHA's ratio and much worse than Washington State or Oregon. Brown also questions why Cal OSHA is on a starvation diet. He claims that the political decision to not improve Cal OSHA with the existing funding and staffing levels it needs to do its job comes from Governor Brown's small government austerity forever approach and DIR directors Christine Baker's new paradigm that prioritizes compliance assistance and partnerships with employers over enforcement of workplace health and safety regulations. The governor's proposed 2014 and 15 budget does not even reach the year 2000 levels of enforcement staffing. The DIR spokesman, Peter Melton, declined to comment on Brown's allegations. And now, our fraud report. Michael Drobot, the, law, the former owner of a Long Beach hospital, pleaded not guilty. 
to charges related to his admitted role in what authorities have called the largest medical fraud case in state history. Despite the plea, Drobot is expected to formally plead guilty at some point in the near future. This hearing in federal district court was Drobot's first court appearance since the U.S. Attorney's Office announced the charges against him in February. After Drobot entered his not guilty plea, Judge Douglas McCormick acknowledged the court's expectation that a guilty plea would be recorded during a future hearing. The federal criminal case already contains a 35-page plea agreement signed by Drobot and his attorneys on February 21st. Drobot, who faces a 10-year prison sentence, has agreed to plead guilty to counts of conspiracy and payment of kickbacks for his activities in the scheme. Officials accuse him of more than $500 million worth of fraudulent medical bills. California's workers' compensation system ended up paying many of the fraudulent bills. The case is also tied to an ongoing federal corruption case against State Senator Ron Calderon and his brother, former Assemblyman Tom Calderon, who also held office while a member of the Democratic Party. One of Drobot's said outside the courtroom that Drobot has acknowledged and accepts responsibility for his actions. The federal judge allowed Drobot to remain free during the course of legal proceedings subject to $5,000 bonds. His next court appearance was scheduled for May 27th. Acting on complaints from residents, police carried out compliance checks at six Azusa massage parlors, issuing several citations but making no arrests. Police joined with officials from Azusa Code Enforcement, the California EDD, the California DIR, and the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department during the operation. Azusa PD detectives solicited the help of outside agencies with specific expertise in massage parlor operations to develop and execute this administrative compliance detail. Numerous citations were issued for violations of various Azusa municipal codes along with workers' compensation insurance or minimum wage violations. Some of the businesses involved face fines of several thousand dollars each. These investigations are ongoing, so none of the businesses are being identified. Authorities claim that similar administrative inspections are likely to be held again in the future. And in regulatory news, last month the DWC posted proposed regulations to transition the state's workers' compensation system from the decades-old ICD-9 to ICD-10. The proposed regulation was in anticipation of a national transition to ICD-10, which was scheduled to occur next October. But things changed quickly in D.C., this week, the U.S. Senate approved a House bill that will delay the national transition to ICD-10 for another year, or until at least October 2015. And the healthcare industry reacted badly to this news. It took the Senate nearly five hours Monday to debate and approve a bill. The curious and disconcerting thing is, 
During that time, not a single senator made mention of the ICD-10 provision included in the bill, leaving many industry officials questioning. Do they even know what they just voted on? Either way, overall, the folks in healthcare were not very happy. The American Health Information Man Management Association expressed deep disappointment. It claims this delay would likely cost the industry an additional $1 billion to $6.6 billion on top of the already incurred costs from the previous one-year delay. This does not include the lost opportunity costs of failing to move to a more effective code set. Similarly, the College of Healthcare Information Management executives issued a statement that it was extremely disappointed by the Senate's vote. H.R. 4302, the so-called Doc Fix Bill, also suspends Medicare's Sustainable Growth Rate, or SGR formula, that would have cut the physician reimbursement rate this year by nearly 24%. Officials from the American Medical Association said that AMA was deeply disappointed by the Senate's decision to enact a 17th patch to fix the flawed SGR formula. It claims Congress has spent more taxpayer money on temporary patches than it would cost to solve the problem for good. Although it has not been announced, the DWC will likely delay its proposed rulemaking on ICD-10 to conform to federal timelines. And in medical news, in California, workers' compensation, the medical treatment utilization schedule, or MTUS, adopted by the DWC is presumed to be correct. It is the starting point for the UR and IMR decision-making process. An injured worker would have to overcome that presumption with high-quality scientific evidence. The chronic pain chapter of the MTUS does not approve the use of medical marijuana. Under the heading, cannabinoids, the MTUS states it is not recommended. The MTUS also claims that 11 states have approved the use of medical marijuana for the treatment of chronic pain, but there are no quality controlled clinical data with cannabinoids. Nonetheless, it is just a matter of time before this issue of medical marijuana becomes a problem for the workers' comp industry. Experts say the issue of medical marijuana in the workers' compensation arena is approaching a crucial tipping point. That's the message from Priam's senior vice president, Mark Pugh, a 30-year workers' comp veteran and opinion leader on the medical marijuana front. It's also the message of an upcoming roundtable discussion at the 2014 CLM annual conference in Florida. The discussion will center on the clinical risks and benefits of medical marijuana as well as potential legal liabilities and state-mandated payment. It's all part of a rampant industry-wide concern on medical marijuana and its future in workers' compensation. Hugh said that no carrier has admitted to making payouts for medical marijuana treatment, but he also believes the industry as a whole is on a tipping point with at least 
of workers' compensation professionals in favor of allowing medical marijuana as a treatment option. He said, medical marijuana as a societal inevitability and workers' compensation professionals need to figure out how they'll deal with it. Comp Pharma's Pharmacy Benefit Managers, PBMS, published its 41-page report on the proliferation of compounding pharmacies and workers' compensation claims. Workers' compensation has seen a steady increase in prescriptions for topical compound preparations and prescriptions for sterile compounded drugs are appearing as well. In fact, the use of compounded drugs in workers' compensation has increased nearly five-fold in the past five years. Along with increased use, the prices charged for compounds have risen dramatically. The quality of the preparation and the safety and efficacy of these custom compounds are largely unknown. Usually formulated with four to six different ingredients, compounded medications can come with staggeringly high costs running into thousands of dollars per prescription. Compounders claim that applying a topical drugs to the site of the injury theoretically avoids systemic absorption and subsequent side effects. And that combining multiple agents into a single preparation reduces the number of tablets or capsules needed and helps patients who have trouble swallowing oral preparations. Compounds can emit ingredients that cause an allergic or other adverse reaction in the patient. Workers' compensation payers are questioning the cost of compounds and struggling with how to assess their efficacy and appropriateness and determine appropriate reimbursement. The most common compounds in workers' compensation are topicals, creams, gels, or ointments that are applied to the skin and are intended to manage pain. Despite their prevalence, the report says there is very limited evidence to support the use of these preparations. Also, sterile products are occasionally prescribed for injured workers. Most sterile medications are for implantable pain pumps. In recent years, some compounding pharmacies have begun pushing the boundaries by marketing new uses for existing medications. The internet abounds with compounding companies making therapeutic claims for their special topical formulations. The report says that these claims have no supporting evidence of safety and efficacy. This is especially true of compounded topical pain medications. Comp Pharma's research has not revealed any evidence that topical compounds are safe or effective. In fact, the evidence indicates that there is significant variation between the stated potency of a compounded product and actual ingredients. The report claims that as long as there are no regulatory requirements related to testing and post-dispensing safety surveillance, the procurement of compounded medications is a situation where the prescriber must beware. The lack of data presented also begs the question, if no strong clinical research supports the use of compounded medications, is custom compound the right thing to do for the patient? The battle over control and safety of compounding drugs has pitted the FDA against state boards of pharmacy. On one side, 
The FDA seeks to regulate the compounding of drugs that go beyond traditional compounding into the realm of mega non-prescription compounding. On the other hand, the states spurred on by the compounding drug industry seek to keep control by issuing new rules and passing new regulations. The American Society of Anesthesiologists published a list of treatments or tests that are commonly ordered, but not always necessary. ASA released its second list of five targeted evidence-based recommendations that can support conversations between patients and physicians, anesthesiologists, about what care is really necessary. One, don't prescribe opiate analgesics as first-line therapy to treat chronic non-cancer pain. Physicians should consider multimodal therapy, including non-drug treatments such as behavioral and physical therapies prior to pharmacological intervention. If drug therapy appears indicated, non-opiate medications such as NSAIDs or anticonvulsants should be tried prior to commencing opiates. Two, don't prescribe opiate analgesics as long-term therapy to treat chronic non-cancer pain until the risks are considered and discussed with the patient. Patients should be informed of the risks of such treatment, including the potential for addiction. Physicians and patients should review and sign a written agreement that identifies the responsibilities of each party, such as urine drug testing and the consequences of non-compliance with the agreement. Physicians should be cautious in co-prescribing opiates and benzodiazepines. Physicians should proactively evaluate and treat, if indicated, the nearly universal side effects of constipation and low testosterone or estrogen. Three, avoid imaging studies for acute low back pain with specific indications. Imaging for low back pain in the first six weeks after pain begins should be avoided in the absence of specific clinical indications. Most low back pain does not need imaging and doing so may reveal incidental findings that divert attention and increase the risk of having unhelpful surgery. Four, don't use intravenous sedation for diagnostic and therapeutic nerve blocks or joint injections as a default practice. Ideally, Diagnostic procedures should be performed with local anesthetic alone. Five, avoid irreversible interventions for non-cancer pain that carry significant costs and or risks. Irreversible interventions for non-cancer pain such as peripheral chemical neurolytic blocks or peripheral radiofrequency ablation should be avoided because they may carry significant long-term risks of weakness, numbness, or increased pain. The ASA Committee on Pain Management was charged with developing the Choosing Wisely list on pain medicine. The American Pain Society has endorsed ASA's Choosing Wisely list on pain medicine. To learn more about Choosing Wisely and to view the complete list and additional detail about the recommendations and evidence supporting them, visit 
choosingwisely.org. And in other news, a new survey released by Affleck found that 42% of all companies providing access to voluntary accident and disability insurance reported declines in their workers' compensation claims. The Affleck Workers' Compensation Report asked 600 employers from small, medium, and large U.S. companies if they provided employees with accident access or disability insurance, and if so, whether they noted a corresponding decline in workers' compensation claims. When responses were broken down by company size, the survey found that 55% of large companies that provide access to accident insurance experienced declines in workers' compensation claims, while 34% of small and medium-sized companies each reported declines. Ty Elliott, Affleck Vice President of Core Broker Sales, claims that these findings confirm the correlation between accident and disability insurance and reduced workers' compensation claims. Employers can now weigh the potential positive financial effects of offering accident and disability insurance against the costs of workers' compensation claims. The study has been reported in mainstream media, most of the insurance journals, and the Wall Street Journal. Unfortunately, the study does not provide a financial analysis. Assuming the declines in workers' compensation claims reduced employer costs on the other side of the equation, providing voluntary accident and disability insurance to all employees would be an increased cost for the employers who do not provide this benefit. A financial analyst needs to determine if the additional cost is offset by the projected savings. If there's no savings, the concept seems more like cost shifting than cost savings. That's all our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, iPod, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm David Jimenez, a partner with Floyd Scarin and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today and drop by again next week for more news.